0: This morning, as we dive into John 11, and we hear Jesus' words when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, the one question I want us to reflect on is, who is able to step up? Who is able to step up? The first time I remember that question being important in my life was when I was about 16 years old, I want to preface this by saying I was a complete and utter knucklehead when I was 16 years old. I had zero wisdom. And my friends and I, I was in a whole like tribe of people who had no wisdom whatsoever. And in our little Honda Civic, which like barely had four wheels, we were driving around and we were looking for something fun to do. We showed up at the bowling alley, not because we liked bowling, but just People back in the day in Chandler when it was just fields and stuff, like, the bowling alley was apparently a big deal. No one bowled, ever. But everyone's standing out in front of the bowling alley, and we see two groups of the broiest bros about to fight each other. And because we're fools and because we can't bowl, we think, let's, let's watch this. Let's watch a fight. This is going to be awesome you know, these guys with their Red Bull in their hand and their little pottery stuff on their nose, they were, like, ready to throw down. And for some reason, they decided to, like, go drive out into a field and fight there. They were, like, doing logistics for their fight. And we're like, okay, we'll we'll just follow them. So all these guys jump into this one truck. Uh, This was, like, one of the groups that was going to fight. And it was, like, it was like so many guys in this one truck. It was like a clown car for bros. They just kept, like, stacking in there. And so we're like, all right, we're just going to follow this truck. So we're following them around. We're not really sure what, where they're going or what they're doing. Then we start to notice that they all have, like, baseball bats and metal poles. And there's one guy with this metal pole jumps out of the truck and he, like, goes into some bushes, like, 20 feet ahead of us. We're stopped at a stoplight. We, don't, we lose track of this guy. But moments later, he emerges out of the bushes right next to our car. And he starts hitting our car as hard as he can with the metal pole. His eyes were crazy, and we immediately hit the gas and started driving away. And they immediately hit the gas and started following us. This big clown car with bros just falling out every side is following us, and we cannot get rid of them. Our little little Civic can barely make it up a hill, and they've got like this big F-150 or 250 or whatever the right number is. And they're following us, and we start looking around the car. We've got a lot of bravado. We thought of ourselves as pretty tough, but we're all asking, who's going to step up? Because we are about to be in the hardest fight of our lives because we've got four guys against like 15 and they all have weapons for some reason. And unless we become like Jackie Chan instantly, we're going to get taken out. And so we're looking around like who is going to step up? And there's one guy, one guy, pretty much any of my stories about like a really crazy dude doing a crazy thing from when I was young. is this one guy, I just change his name every time. We'll call him Ricky today. (laughs) Ricky, he looks and he says, I got this. Like, what do you mean you got this? I got this. Okay. We don't know what. He's not telling us the plan. And he slows down to five miles an hour. And you could just, we, we were so close and so slow, you could hear them yelling in the truck. And then all of a sudden, he punches it hits the gas, goes about two blocks, swerves onto the street where he lives, pulls into his driveway. We all jump out of the car and he runs in the house. (laughs) Nowhere to be found. The truck of bros is catching up and all of a sudden they start to slow down and these guys are getting ready to jump out of the car and it is about to go down and it is three on 15. We've got no shot. But then you see a wave of fear wash over them. Their eyes get big. And I have no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden, Roy runs right past me. Roy, it's out. So he runs right past me. And this guy has gone into the kitchen and he has grabbed all of the kitchen utensils that you can imagine. He's got a pizza cutter and a corkscrew and all of these things in his hand, and he's looking like, like Chef Ramsay assembled like a, a cross between Wolverine and you know Edward Scissorhands, and he's got this crazy look on his eye, and he is running right at this group of bros, and they have never seen anything like this before, so they start tapping the, tr- the truck and say, go, 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 and he chases away these 15 dudes with baseball bats as we were in the car we were asking the question who is able to step up and deal with those guys and the reality was none of us were but Roy was Roy was able to step up and today as we look at this passage as we look at John 11 as we read this familiar story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What we're going to see is that all of humanity has this big, ugly enemy that we have no shot with. And as much as we try to say, who's going to step up and fight this enemy? All of us are insufficient. The enemy is death. And Jesus runs right at the heart of death. And he is the one who has the power, who has the ability to step up and to deal decisively with death. And as we look at this, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't just step up to death as a concept, but it's, it's meaningful for our lives. He steps up to death with his tears, with his power, and in his own timing. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we recognize that you in your life, your death, and your resurrection have the power to deal with death. And all that death brings as well. All the suffering, all the re- reality of brokenness in this world. And we pray for this moment that we would have a sense of your presence here and what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John 11. John 11. And w- I'm going to walk us through here. I'm going to walk us through the passage so we can get the big picture of what's going on because it's a pretty intense, dramatic, emotional scene. But Jesus is doing some pretty incredible stuff. So John 11 starts out, the scene starts out with Jesus and his disciples on the outskirts of town. They're avoiding arrest, but they're still doing ministry. People are coming out to see Jesus. But then he gets one of those messages. One of those, are you sitting down messages? One of those messages that you just never want to hear. It's from Mary and from Martha, two women he loves deeply. And it's about Lazarus, one of Jesus's close friends. And the message is that Lazarus is sick. He's, he's terminally ill. Why else would they be sending this message? He, he is in big trouble. And they need Jesus to show up, to show up and to help and to heal. Jesus's response in verse four is pretty peculiar. It's ambiguous. He says, Jesus says, he looks around, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God uh, may be glorified through it. It's a bold statement. It's a beautiful statement, but it's an ambiguous statement. Mary and Martha, likely when they heard this, when the message was delivered to them, they likely thought that Jesus was coming, that he was going to show up and heal Lazarus. Of course he's going to heal Lazarus, right? Of course he's going to heal Lazarus. There was this paralyzed man who couldn't walk. Stranger, Jesus healed him. Blind man, stranger, Jesus healed him. This is his close friend whom he loves. Of course, Jesus is going to show up for him. But what does Jesus do? Nothing. He gets the message that Lazarus is sick. And what's his first response? Nothing. He sits around. For two whole days. The disciples perplexed. They've, they've, they're very confused. They have a confusing conversation here. Where they think like. Oh maybe he's just sleeping. Or like. They're just a confusing conversation. Because why wouldn't Jesus just go immediately. If Lazarus was really sick. But then Jesus announces to the group. He announces to him. He says Lazarus has died we're going to Bethany. We're going to the town of Bethany. And he even says, I'm glad he died because at the end, you're going to see God's glory and you're going to believe. And the the disciples, I mean, one thing you can take away from the book of John is that the disciples are like a baffled group of knuckleheads who are just curious about all of the things that Jesus is doing. So they're following him to Bethany, curious about what he's going to do. And then Jesus doesn't even get to town when Martha shows up. You know, Martha's been thinking about all of this. She's been thinking what, about the big uh, theological questions of, of what's going on. And she shows up to Jesus with a posture of confused faith. She knows he's powerful. But she says, If you would have been here, if you would have been here, Lazarus would be okay. He would still be alive. And then Jesus again, The master of ambiguity says, he will rise again. Immediately, Martha, with her good theology, she starts talking about the resurrection. She knows that there's a day that's coming when God is fully going to deal with death, that people will come out of their tombs, that all that comes with death and suffering will be done with, and God will have full victory. And it's a future day, and it's a doctrine she believes it she says i know lazarus is gonna rise again on that day but then jesus with these powerful words says it's not a time it's not a doctrine but when we're talking about the resurrection jesus says to her in verse 25 i am the resurrection i am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me even though he's going to die, he's going to live. And everyone who believes in me will never die. How's Martha making sense of this? She probably doesn't understand the fullness of what, she, what he's saying, but she just has this outburst of declaring that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that she believes that, and then she runs and goes and gets Mary. Next scene is Mary. Mary's the more emotional of the two. Uh, She's the more sensitive of the two. She's sitting there in her home weeping, weeping with family, weeping with probably some professional mourners. That was a thing they did back in the day. And there's a house full of people. And then when Martha says, Jesus is here, he's on the outskirts of town. Immediately, Mary pops up and she starts rushing towards Jesus and this whole mob of people who were mourning with her, they thought she was going to the grave. And they start following her as well. And so you've got this mob of crying people that are moving toward Jesus. And when, she's get, when she gets there, she doesn't have questions for Jesus. She doesn't want to talk about the theology of the resurrection. What she has for Jesus is her tears. She collapses in front of him. Just pure grief collapsing in front of him. In verse 32, we see her. It says that she fell at his feet, and she said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus looks around, looks around at this crowd. He looks around at this sweet woman that he deeply cares for, and he just bursts out in tears. We know this is the, the shortest memory verse of uh, verse 35, but Jesus wept. But he is more than weeping. He is deeply troubled and, 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 and uh, crying. And through his tears, he says, where's the tomb? He demands that they go to the tomb. He demands that the tomb would be opened. And you have all of these people standing around wondering what is Jesus going to do? Martha's pondering, what does it mean that he he is the resurrection? Mary is in awe of Jesus's tear-stained face that's matching her own. Half the crowd is admiring Jesus's love for this family. The other half of the crowd is mumbling accusations about how Jesus healed a blind man, but he couldn't even heal his own friend. Disciples still baffled and confused. And in the middle of all of it, there is a dead, decomposing body in the tomb. Jesus looks up to heaven and he starts praying. He invites the world into the perpetual conversation that he is having with his father. And then after praying, he says three words that should make us tremble. He says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And with those three words, you see this mummified friend stumbling out of the tomb. And Martha and Mary and all of the crowds, they realize that this Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a healer. He's more than just someone who's got some nice teaching. But he's actually the one, the only one, who can step up to death and be victorious. This is good news. It's good news for them, and it is good news for us. Because all of humanity has been trying to figure out how do we deal with this problem of death. 20,000 pharmaceutical products on the market, not one can deal with death. Humanity and all of our brilliant ideas, have, have, we've done incredible things. We've put men on the moon. We've got nanotechnology. I don't even know what nanotechnology means, but I'll tell you what. It doesn't deal with death. But with these three words, Jesus is the one who can step up to death and be victorious. And so today what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to celebrate that. We're going to reflect on that. But he doesn't just step up to death. He's bringing a few things to the fight With death that we all need to know number one is that he's bringing his tears number two is that he's bringing his power number three that he's bringing his own timing his tears his power and his timing so let's look at Jesus's tears Jesus steps up to death with his tears I want you to do a little thought experiment right now I want you to just imagine Jesus What is his facial expression when you imagine Jesus? It's easy for us to imagine that Jesus is this stone-faced, stoic, dispassionate, detached guru who's just like knows he's going to fix things and is going around and is unaffected and is just like healed, boom, healed. Doesn't care. I mean, he could have showed up. To, to Mary and Martha and just been like, chill out, I'm gonna raise him from the dead. But what we actually see in this passage is that Jesus isn't apathetic about suffering, but he is fully human and has fully human tear ducts and they work. Hebrews 2:17 says that Jesus had to be made human in every way except for sin. And, and, and he was doing that so that he could be the faithful and merciful high priest to help us in our time of need. That Jesus wasn't this robotic guru, but a fully human with fully operational tear ducts. and we see those in operation when we read this passage. And it's not just 35. It's not just the, the, the words that say Jesus wept, but the whole passage, to my count, 15 times it's talking about his emotion or the emotion of the scene. It's it's scandalous to the Stoics and the Gnostics who would eventually read this that that there's real emotion happening here. And the pinnacle of emotion happens in verses 32 through 35. This encounter with Mary. When it says that he, he saw her weeping and then all the crowds around and how they were weeping it gets very emotional. It says that he was deeply moved and his spirit was greatly troubled. And then he says, Where have you laid them? And they said, Come and see. Instead of just moving to action, verse 35 says, He wept. You see two pictures of emotion here. Interestingly enough, you see anger here. The word for deeply moved is indignant or outraged. It, that was a word that was used in those days to describe a war horse flaring its nostrils and snorting and about to charge into something. You see, there's this anger that Jesus is feeling. He's looking at this group of mourners and this person that he loves and was realizing that death that does not belong in his world has come and it's ripping things apart. But he's also filled with this deep compassionate, empathetic sadness, and he pours out his tears. When Mary looks up at Jesus and she sees his tear-stained face matching her own, she is seeing that we have a Savior who deeply cares, who deeply loves, and who enters into the emotion of living in this sin-stained, messed-up world that's in the presence of death. That's Jesus' facial expression towards her. But when you think about Jesus' facial expression towards you in your moment of pain, what does it look like? Is he rolling his eyes? Is he like, hey, look, I'm gonna deal with this? Does he have a stern, disinterested face? Does he have folded arms? Is he not even paying attention to you because he's got bigger things to deal with? If we imagine Jesus as this emotionless guru, may I suggest that our imaginations are lying to us that our imaginations are lying to us and they have been shaped by centuries of philosophical thought from Stoics to Gnostics to all kinds of Greek dudes wearing funny little sashes and stuff. And that that has communicated this mindset to the Western mind that emotion is bad and a good God who's powerful doesn't have those emotions. But Jesus is pouring out his tears for Mary and he has not run out of tears for you. He has tears for you as well. I know that there are people in this congregation who cry tears of grief. You've been robbed of laughter from a friend who's died, of fishing trips from a father that you loved dearly, of birthdays with a child lost to miscarriage, and that you have real tears and Jesus has real tears for you as well. I know there are others who are crying tears of frustration. You're balancing eight different things. School, a job, a family, all these different things. You're you're juggling them and you you feel like you're showing up, but things just keep falling apart. They just keep going wrong and you are exhausted and you can't get ahead in your tears of frustration. Jesus has tears for you as well. I know that there are those who have tears of longing. There's that one thing that you pray for over and over again, whether it's a spouse or it's to have kids or it's a particular job. Maybe it's just one good night's sleep and you have tears of frustration, and Jesus has tears for you as well. When Jesus steps up to death, he doesn't just robotically deal with it, but he actually steps up to you with the fullness of his heart and the realness of his tears. Jesus steps up to death with his tears. But the second thing I want us to see is that Jesus has more than tears. That he steps up to death with his power, that he has the power to put death to death, to assassinate death, and to take back all that it has stolen from us. You know, it is nice, it is comforting to know that you've got an empathetic Savior who is full of comfort, who has tears. But at the end of the day, if he can't do anything about death, it's meaningless. If my friend, Roy, who we all now know as Roy, uh, if he jumps out of that car and he just starts crying, that does not help us with the mob of bros. The reality is at the end of the day, we need more than a crier. We need a fighter when it comes to death. And Jesus is that fighter. We see this. We see him, him actually saying this in the passage and doing it. He's saying it to Martha. She's talking about how all of her hopes were in that future day of resurrection, and she was right to have hopes in those days. But Jesus is saying that doctrine of resurrection that you have, I am the resurrection, the full embodiment of the hope and the expectation of, that you have when God is going to get rid of death and all of the things that come with death, like divorce and cancer and pain. He says, all of that hope is bound up in me. I am it. The living, breathing embodiment of resurrection. But it's not just talk. See, I love when the Bible trash talks death. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your victory? And where is your sting? But They're able to trash talk death because the reality of resurrection of real bodies coming out of the grave. And then Jesus steps up and shows that he's not all talk, but he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And that mummy starts walking forward and they are seeing that Jesus is the one who's powerful enough to step up to death and to bust it in the chin and to leave it fully defeated. And not just death, but all the junk that comes with death. Jesus has the power to send cancer into permanent remission. Done. He has the power to breathe life into COVID-collapsed lungs. He has the power to take a decomposing heart in a tomb that's buried under the earth and make it start beating again. He has the power to mend the fractured marriage, the the unreconciled relationships, to dry up the wells of depression. Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they all see that Jesus is not just a Savior with tears on his cheeks, but with his fists clenched, ready to deal with the worst that death has to give. You know, this is a reality. We've seen it. But sometimes, if I'm being honest with you, I have a hard time believing it. I'm a kind of a skeptical guy when it comes to healing and stuff. I grew up in a neighborhood where everyone was claiming everyone was being healed, and, you know, they weren't. Um, and uh, if Jesus has the power over death, he's got the power to deal with the other stuff as well. But so often, I lack that faith. I lack that prayerfulness to actually believe that Jesus is going to show up and, and, and just take a shot at death and suffering. There was a, a time uh, a few years ago when uh, John Crawford, he's one of our pastors. This guy, he's one of the greatest humans on earth. He looks like vegan Conor McGregor, but like he is awesome. <laughs> um, this dude was praying for a bunch of people and over like a several-month period. Like, he would pray, and they would be healed. And I celebrated it, but there was a part of me that was like, I don't know. Like, were they going to get better anyway? Well, God was humbling me around that time. Uh, I had this old football injury that popped up, and it was like uh, my elbow was in extreme pain. And it was like locked in this position. And it was bad. And one day, I'm teaching a class. And I'm getting ready for the class, and John comes in, and he sees me struggling to write on the whiteboard. I'm, I'm like T-Rex. I'm like trying to write stuff on the whiteboard. He's like, hey, man, is there anything I could do for you? Can I help you? And I said, yeah. And I started giving him, like, directions. I'm like, man, if, you could dictate, if I could just dictate, and you write on the board, and then maybe you can get something out of my car because it's hard to hold. And then he said, can I pray for you? And I realized in that moment that, like, As much as my arm was hurting, I had not once actually prayed or asked for prayer when it came to my arm. I was trying a lot of turmeric concoctions, and, (laughs) you know, I was on WebMD, like, trying to figure this out. I had never even asked someone to pray. And so John starts praying. Not like crazy. He's not yelling or anything. He's just praying for God to heal. And in that moment, my elbow loosened up. And immediately, I was able to use my elbow, and I was able to write on the board and everything like that. There were multiple people standing around watching this thing, and we were in awe. And there was a part of me that was even trying to talk myself out of it. I was like, maybe the turmeric just, like, kicked in right at that moment. <laughs> I, I had such a hard time believing it that I was, like, shaking my arm to, like, try to get it to hurt just to, just to like, see that this really take. And it did. Jesus can deal with death, but he can deal with all the other broken stuff as well. And as much as Mary and Martha are confused about Jesus' timing and what Jesus is doing, there is something we can learn from Mary and Martha in that they had this posture of dependence. They said, we have this broken thing that our, our brother is sick. And their response is, go get Jesus. And in our lives, the reality of Jesus having that power over death and that power over suffering should lead us to a place where we have this posture of go get Jesus. When we're dealing with physical wounds, physically broken things, from cancer to canker sores, go get Jesus. Let's pray to him from spiritual stuff of unforgiveness and pornography and pride and the sins that we struggle with, let's go get Jesus. The social stuff of political division and racism and trafficking, let's go get Jesus. Being a people of prayer who actually believe that he is a powerful God and who can do something, that he is able to step up to death and to put death into remission. Jesus steps up to death with his power. And then number three, Jesus steps up to death with his timing, with his own timing. He doesn't just come with tears. He doesn't just come with power, but he comes with his own timing. Jesus' timing is often confusing and confounding. Mary and Martha love Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They believe that he can do something, but he does not show up. He delays his trip to Bethany to make sure that Lazarus is dead. In those days, there was this Jewish myth that the soul would hover over a body for four days. And that you could maybe resuscitate somebody within that four-day period, um, it wasn't like, this isn't in the Bible. This is just like a myth that they believed around there. It was kind of a silly thing. But even so, Jesus is showing that his, his timing is brilliant. He waits two days so that when he finally gets to Bethany, there is no question that Lazarus is dead. He's like dead dead, that he is super dead. He wants to show them something. He, in his timing, he says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to be slow because the story that I'm writing here is not a story about healing. It's a story about resurrection. And Jesus does it on purpose. There are three places here in this passage where Jesus explicitly gives his purpose for why he's delaying. In verse 4 and verse 14 and verse 40, they all say something along the lines of that he is cultivating a deeper sense of faith and trust in God, or that he is showing them his glory. In verse 40, right before he raises Lazarus, he said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See a bigger picture of a God who isn't just medicine, but who assassinates death itself. But it was slow. Can you imagine? the questions and the anguish of Mary and Martha as they waited for Jesus to come. And they saw Lazarus's diminishing health. Why wouldn't Jesus just show up right then and right there? When they, when they close that tomb on Lazarus, they think that it's the end of the story, the end of a story about Jesus's failed healing but it's actually just the middle of the story, a middle of the story of Jesus' successful resurrection. Verse 5 says, He loved them, so He waited. And God sometimes loves us so much that He waits, that He moves slow, that He's forming something in us that's deeper and that's better than what we want. But He moves slow. In other words... Jesus is a pit master, not a hot dog vendor. You know, I'm gonna talk about some barbecue in here, all right? So, Jesus is the pit master, low and slow, making a brisket in our lives rather than a cheap old hot dog. Jesus is the pit master who's at work in your life, in your formation, creating something that's deeper than what you could imagine. Who here, if you had the choice, if I told you, It's not true. But if I told you that there is brisket out there or hot dogs in there, who's taking the brisket? Who's taking the hot dogs? Who's the vegan taking the jackfruit? No, I'm just... (laughs) See, hot dogs are quick and efficient, and you just basically boil some scraps of processed meat product, and it only tastes good because of the presence of salt. So often, we want Jesus to do that in us. Just give me something. Just microwave this this issue that I'm wrestling with. But brisket, brisket is valuable. It is not cheap. And it is a tough piece of meat that slowly breaks down through 16 hours in the heat and then turns into a fragrant and delicious feast. So often, God is preparing a feast within us, rather than just throwing hot dogs at us. And when it comes to our formation, so often he transforms us, but he's doing it slowly and in his own timing. You see this throughout Scripture. James 1, there's a a passage in James 1 that talks about this, about how, how we should rejoice when we face various kinds of trials because we know that it's building steadfastness within us. It's bringing a maturation of character, a deeper dependence on God, a deeper way of encountering God. But when it's really hungry, when you're craving that change, craving that fruitfulness, it's hard to wait the 16 hours. God slowly makes brisket rather than microwaving hot dogs. And so many of the good, the the people that you know who have that really rich character, it's because they've stayed present in the pit, in the fire, in the slow cooker, and not bailed out, trusted in God's timing. Best example of this, I know, is my friend, um, my mentor a father figure, someone uh, named Rick Love. I co-founded a, a nonprofit with him, but he was uh, more than that to me. He was fa- he's family to me. Um, you know, he, everything I know about leadership, uh, I've learned from him. And so much of what he's learned from leadership didn't come from being this brilliant guy, but it's this guy who was faithful and stayed in the fire when things got tough. He developed courage through decades of church planting in Indonesia, even when he, his life was threatened at times. He developed humility because he stayed in the fire pit of leading a 1,000-person a organization with 1,000 different opinions about what he should be doing in his job. He grew as an author. He wasn't an academic, but he became an author through staying in the fire pit of a very hard doctoral program even though he wasn't academically inclined. And this guy, he became a peacemaker by staying present in conflict and not bailing out. He even had conflict with the the Prince of Jordan at one point, Um, but he, he hashed it out. He stayed in there. So often, we want brisket, but we want out of the fire. We want God to do brisket within us, but we want out of the fire of his formation. We say we want the brisket of community, but we're always bouncing on our small group or we're always bouncing from house to house to house and, and, and selling homes until we get to that, just that perfect community where everything is going to be right or cutting out friends when there's, you're trying to cut negative people out of your life, not staying in the heat of really working out conflict, not staying in the heat of showing up in the hospital when they really need it. We often say we want the brisket of fruitful work for the glory of God, for the shalom of the city, but we switch jobs whenever we encounter a hint of a hard boss or some mundane work. We say we want the brisket of biblical justice, but we shrink back whenever we feel the heat of a complicated question or real work. So often, our character or fruitful community, or good work, or seeking the shalom of the city, or justice, and all of those things, it comes not from snapping our fingers, but from staying in the heat of God's formation and trusting in his timing. So often, his answer to our prayer is not no, but not yet. He's doing something deeper. He's doing something better. He's making brisket within the center of our lives. So we see that Jesus, in this passage, we see that he is the one who can step up to death. We see that there is comfort in his tears. We see that we can trust in his power and that he's doing something good with his timing. There is one question I want to leave with us, leave us with. There's one question that has been haunting me all week long. What about the tomb next to Lazarus? What was that about? Because it was good news to Mary and Martha that Lazarus was risen. But somebody in that town of Bethany heard that Jesus was in town. He walked up to the tomb, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're wondering, couldn't you do just one more? Couldn't you just do my family? What about my family? In that tomb was someone's wife. A little girl who wanted her mother. Someone's best friend. They're saying, couldn't you have done just one more? As a matter of fact, Jesus, if you can do this trick of raising people from the dead, why is that not your full-time job? Why are you walking around talking about flowers and figs When you could literally just be going from tomb to tomb, raising people from the dead. What about the tomb next to Lazarus? I get that. I get that because 2020 was a hard year for me. It was not a hard year because of the pandemic or because of election or the social strife or anything. 2020, the hardest part of it, happened before all that. Rick Love, my mentor, my father figure, he died at the beginning of 2020. And for the first 20, 23 days or so, I'm not a guy who cries much, but um, there was a moment where I just broke down for like 20-something straight days. I thought if there was... If I'm stepping into this lead pastor role, I'm stepping into this year, that was going to be crazy. I, it's fine. At least I've got Rick to go to. We can watch a football game together. We can pray. And I got, I got the support I need. But in 2020, he was not there. I feel for the family next to Lazarus's tomb because somebody's Rick love is in that tomb. Lazarus was Jesus's friend, not mine. And I prayed, and there's nothing more that I want than for Rick to come out of that tomb and to be with him again. And if this passage is a one-time trick that Jesus does, it's only good news for Mary, Martha, and a few other people. But what we see in the book of John is that the book of John does not end here that the raising of Lazarus is actually foreshadowing greater resurrection that is to come. It's foreshadowing not just uh, Lazarus coming out of the grave, but Jesus in his resurrection, kicking open the tomb and fully conquering death, taking a shot to the chin of death and completely winning, having the ability to step up to death. And then that was a foreshadow of the future day that's coming when not just Jesus is resurrected, but as the first fruits of the resurrection, he brings resurrection and restoration to this whole messed up, broken world. And all that death has taken away in that moment the birthdays, the anniversaries, all of those things will be restored back to us. On that day, that future day of resurrection, He's not just going to say, Lazarus, come out. He's going to say, Natalie, come out. Deshaun, come out of the grave. Megan, come out of the grave. Ryan, come out of the grave. Josh, get out of the grave. Rick Love, come out of the grave. And he's going to whisper to every miscarried child whose parents are grieving, come out of the grave. The person that you are thinking of right now who's left a hole in your heart, Jesus says, come out of that grave. The reality is, in that day when we see those people stepping forward, coming out of the grave and stepping towards us, That's the day when we fully realize that Jesus has stepped up to death and he has emerged utterly victorious. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the one who empties tombs. We praise you are the one who is able to sprint right at death with no fear and to take out that very thing that has taken so much from us. Jesus, we ask that you meet us in this moment. That for those here who need to know that your tears are real and that you deeply care about them, Lord, we pray that they would sense that, that they would sense your comfort and your face of compassion towards them. For those of us who need to believe that your power is big enough to actually deal with death and all that comes with death, Lord, we pray that, that you would show us that you are the solution and not all the other things. Lord, we pray for those of us who are sitting in the midst of a, of a hard timing that you would form our character and that you would give us a vision, a vision for the future day of resurrection when you renew and restore All that is broken. Jesus, you are risen indeed, and that is good news for us. Amen.